Welcome to Wellness for Entrepreneurs, where we have meaningful conversations with founders. This podcast is about exploring, educating, and empowering entrepreneurs on maintaining wellness in their entrepreneurial journey. My name is Matebe Jobo, and I am an entrepreneurship investor, scholar, and evangelist. I am your host. Have you ever wondered how one business can grow exponentially and dominate its peers while one maintains the same market share for years? Well, there is a difference in the mindset and behaviors of what we call high growth firms. This is the Wellness for Entrepreneurs podcast. In this episode, I speak to Chito Kayumba about how the founders or entrepreneurs behind high growth firms think. Gito is a partner at Kolula Capital, a private equity and venture capital firm in Lusaka, Zambia. Gito is an investment professional and sits on many public and private company boards, both in Kenya, South Africa, as well as Zambia. He led investments in many small and medium entities across these countries. Gito is also a thought leader and speaker in his field and is one of the speakers from the collaboration between Wellness for Entrepreneurs podcast and Eagle Wings Consulting, a pan-African networking and events management company founded by Candy Kasongkomona. Chito, we are honored to have you on the Wellness for Entrepreneurs podcast, exploring this very important topic with you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Let's get right into it. Let's start talking about what high growth right. firms are. It is difficult to talk about high-growth firms without thinking about Google, which was founded by Larry Page and Sergey Bin 23 years ago. In your view, what is a high-growth firm and how is it different from a normal small and medium enterprise? I think it really comes down to scalability, right? And scalability is one of the metrics you use to measure how quickly a company can grow, grow in terms of assets, grow in terms of customers, and in terms of most importantly, revenue. So, uh, and most of these companies that are high growth tend to be those that sit within the uh, technological ecosystem that leverage on new technologies that are ICT based, web based uh, applications. And this day and age, you've, you hear things about machine learning and so on and so forth. So that's really the, a very um, you know, basic and simplistic way of answering that question. It, it's, it's a highly scalable business or businesses that also have the potential to scale or have essentially scaled? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating about high growth enterprises is the ability to scale fast. So they grow their revenues um, almost 20% per annum and make at least 10 times more ROI for their investors. So that is really amazing. And one of the most fascinating things about um, high growth enterprises is also the difference in how they think um, in other words, how the, the entrepreneurs behind them think. As a partner in a private equity firm, what has been your experience and journey with these enterprises in terms of their thinking, um, as well as how they actually achieve this tremendous type of growth? I think the first thing that I've recognized in, in my whole journey uh, being in the sector is, you know, like any time anyone is learning or is growing in business is, you're gonna make a lot of mistakes. So 
you know, the first thing I, I learned is that it's good to get to know people, understand what their ethos is, and uh, get to understand what drives them beyond money, right? You know, some people, people's uh, devotion and addiction, in fact, I'll even say obsession with, you know, creating a solution is ultimately what allows them to create those, uh, those entities, those businesses that essentially scale. So I'm attracted to, to passion. I'm attracted to, to those type of uh, um, entrepreneurs and everything else somewhat follows. And, and from my personal experience, I think working within the private equity space, I've been privileged to interface with so many entrepreneurs who are looking to raise money, of course, to scale. I mean, ultimately, that's what uh, Kukula is all about. Really, it's about providing growth capital. So we, we're on the lookout for scale, for high growth companies, um, people whose mindset, whose demeanor, whose um, illustration of competence is speaking to our vision to grow with those entities. And it's not just a financial play. It's really about uh, you know, being involved with people who are looking to create real value, tangible value, because ultimately that's what creates that attraction with customers as well, because customers are the ones who at the end of the day drive scale. If you create a product or a service that becomes ubiquitous, like Google, like many of these other offerings, um, it's because value is being created. And then that's the reason we use these uh, till this day and we'll continue to use them for, for a while until the, another disruption happens and we start to use some other technology. So that's, that's a little bit of my, my experience, you know, interacting with the entrepreneurs and, and their mindset and what really gets me going. Awesome. So you spoke about a couple of things, right? So you firstly spoke about motivation and passion. And then you mentioned something quite interesting, both, um, you know, in the beginning when we were speaking as well now, which is something around technology disruption um, and value for customers. And I just want to pick on those um, words that you mentioned, which is really around um, the characteristics or the unique characteristics of what distinguishes a small, medium enterprise from a really high growth and exponential one. And so when we look at um, research and theory, it actually says that a lot of these founders are highly skilled and educated and in creating value for customers are using new knowledge. I mean, has this been your experience of finding really educated, sophisticated entrepreneurs who are using new knowledge to create new value and are therefore scaling their businesses tremendously? Absolutely. I think education is a very important aspect. I always believe that um, you can be a successful entrepreneur without education. But you th the thing about education, though, is that it makes sense of a lot of things. It enables you to adopt certain things. It enables you to look at the world differently. I mean, we all know what gaps, particularly as entrepreneurs um, and many entrepreneurs out there, basically create businesses to fill gaps, to solve problems. Now, one of the best ways to solve problems is using uh, what enables efficiency. And, and one of the biggest enablers of efficiency is technology. And usually the, anyone who has any know-how from a technological standpoint comes with a, a strong level of education. So definitely uh, education is one. Two is exposure. Um, those who've, who are well-traveled, who've seen uh, what's happening in the world, because it's very difficult for one to essentially innovate and think outside the box if they're always in the same horizon, the same ge geography. But when one has seen how things are done elsewhere, then it's about synthesizing what you've seen, uh, even more advanced markets, and applying them in, in these markets in ways that are 
relevant to these markets. So I'd say that's definitely one of the things. And then, of course, having an open mind, you know, aside from education, exposure, open-mindedness. Of course, you know, and one of the things I, I never leave out in one of the attributes uh, that we look at in, in, in these entrepreneurs that successfully scale businesses, even from the ones that we worked with, is they have a positive mental attitude, you know, and, uh, and they, they're somewhat consistent with that, regardless of challenges that they, they go through and they maintain a strong level of resilience. Um, so that's, that's really yeah, the feedback on that. Yeah, I like your, your points around uh, education. Which are, which are really true. I mean, we spoke about uh, Google founders earlier. And if you think about Larry Page and Sergey Bin, both of them were doing their PhD when they discovered um, or when they developed their first version of the search engine. And then people like Elon Musk, yeah. for example, he was actually about to go to, he moved to California to do his PhD, um, but was already had a background in physics and in um, economics. So one of the interesting things as well is that not only are these founders um, educated or open-minded and are getting experience from somewhere else, but they also have access to highly skilled talent. I mean, have you seen this as well, mm -hmm. that um, these founders tend to partner with um, people or work with employees that are really talented and highly skilled? You know, as the African... Uh, saying, I don't know whether it's Bantu, but I know it's generally African, that if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go together. And uh, these entrepreneurs who've scaled in a way where they've gone as far as they've gone, it has required collaboration of, of like minds or, or minds who fill the gaps that they have. Um, you know, so, I mean, one reality is so Two, two incredible entrepreneurs, we mentioned their names, uh, Sergey Bring and Larry Page, founders of Google. The thing that they had that was lacking, they had the competence to create the technology and, and put it together, but they didn't have the business competence. So they had to hire someone, uh, I think it's Schmidt, I forgot his name, um, who's basically a, an executive, a seasoned Fortune 500 type of executive to come and run the business. And that was an example of utilizing uh, you know, the, the, the power of networks and, and the power of, of teams, right, and, and power of associations, associating with people who come together and, and of course, complement each other from a skill perspective. So naturally, not only should you as an entrepreneur be competent, whether it be arising from education or from experience, uh, but you have to work with those who are, in, in some cases, more competent than you in, specific, in, in certain specializations. Because really scale, because uh, we're talking about high growth, businesses requires a significant amount of moving parts, whether it be not just from a technology standpoint, but also people, individuals who are implementing um, sort of areas in your business that, that just continue to take it forward. Yeah. So if a company does all of this, um, should they immediately expect success? Um, are high growth entities um, overnight successes, for example? You know, the, the reality is um, the companies we talk about today, these high growth businesses that have shattered records, whether it be Google, Facebook, Zoom, you name it, these are the minority, unfortunately. Uh, there's a, there are many more failures out there than there are successes. And, uh, but of course, that doesn't mean people should not take a shot and continue moving. I mean, the stories we hear of resilience, of many failing over and over again until they finally crack it. Um, so success is not guaranteed because the reality is there are some enterprises that may not meet the, 
expectations of the consumer or may not be as attractive or as disruptive. Um, so you, you can take two products that are almost, uh, you know, hardly, it's difficult to differentiate the two, but one seems to have that uh, stickiness or the ability to attract clientele, whether it be based on timing. Timing is a big issue. It could be based on the technological differentiation. I mean, the difference between Yahoo and Google, you know, it's, the, the, there's different theories as to why one succeeded and one, one did it. One was way ahead of the other. Um, I mean, Google, I remember when it started, it was just completely simplistic. It just had the Google banner and the search line. That's it, nothing else. It could, that could have been it. Of course, there's the algorithm as well uh, in terms of identifying um, you know, certain search items and the like. All those are elements that lead into differentiation. So to really answer the question is, it depends on how well differentiated a product is and how the market responds to it, depending on timing, depending on need, and depending on numerous factors. Um, so really, to, to simply answer the question, success is not guaranteed, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something that we, we all should continue to consistently pursue. Yeah, so there are no overnight successes. I think a lot of these no. um, companies, even with the talent that they have, have been at it for at least 10 years or so. And like you said, you know, the technological ecosystem perhaps was not there or the customer fit was not there. And one day it all comes together and there you have the high growth. So that's, that's really interesting. And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs should be encouraged by what you just said as well. Um, Cause there are a lot of smart people working on a lot of things out there, but they're not necessarily growing as fast as, as they think they should be. So you said something around uh, networks and social capital. So what's interesting about these um, startups or, or rather these enterprises is their use of social capital. Have you um, experienced that at all? Or have you seen how one enterprise uses social capital better than the other such that it results in tremendous growth? Absolutely. So, you know, these products, these services exist within a social ecosystem. So, so what one, one, um, testimony of social capital being appropriately utilized is, is having a strong network. People want to work with uh, an entity or an entrepreneur who, who is uh, well vested in, in the community, who's well positioned within the community or whose value proposition is the most is relevant. So that, that is what allows the social capital to, to really take root in a way that allows for scale, that allows for profitability, allows for customer growth. Um, and as you, also can, can imagine. So from an entrepreneurial standpoint, it's, it's, it's one, attracting the right people to, to work with you. Two is, is attracting the clientele because they feel like they've got ownership of it. Think of the way Facebook began. Initially, initially it was in a very small ecosystem, which is just in universities. So it had a level of social capital from the perspective of the founder who was a university student and just made it exclusive to Ivy League, then continued to open it up and and so on until, you know, eventually it just completely became ubiquitous and anyone around the world could access it. Um, and, and there's different reasons for that. But also, you can also say that the exclusivity it had at the time also made it even that more attractive to people where we're pursuing it. But just going back to the issue of, of social capital, we have to, I would say, uh, articulate it in two ways. One is, is having a, a good network as, as, an, as an entrepreneur. And, and being able to leverage on, on that network. The other is having a good product or service that is appreciated by your network. 
Um, and, and I think those are two ways in which people leverage on social capital. And then of course, you know, within the business, having a culture, one that is fully aligned, where people are developed, people are bought in. And I think the banner uh, sort of word for, for social capital here is buy-in, is people should be invested in you. They should feel that they own a piece of your business, they own a piece of you, and that way you will have goodwill. I think goodwill is, is really where is the ultimate result of, of social capital. Man, that's incredible. I like how you're putting it, like um, the community involvement, um, and not necessarily just from a CSI perspective, but that um, there should be buy-in even from your community and your network should be vested in your product. That's, that's incredible. That's a very different way of, you, of thinking about social capital because a lot of time people think about social capital like, oh, I need a high-powered a network of high-powered individuals, you know, but it is simple, is as simple as people buying into your product and being vested. So that's a really incredible point. And I just want to move the conversation along to uh, access to venture capital. So a lot of these startups um, or these high growth enterprises, they're quite strategic in their use of financial capital. So in your view, especially being in the private equity space, when an entrepreneur or startup that, that comes to you um, looking for this type of capital, what are the things that, that you think that these high growth firms are thinking about uh, when they approach investors? So this is from their point of view um, at this point. We'll talk about what you look for um, just now. But what do you think are the things that are typically on their minds when they approach uh, an investor? They, they often need to procure assets that will enable the businesses to scale even further. And, and to add better value to, to the production of their value proposition. So whether it be machinery, if it's you know, some sort of a manufacturing outfit, if it's a technological outfit, it's, it's purchasing technology. Technology costs money. Um, having the talent within the team to pay the, you know, the remuneration and the like costs money. Paying for research and, and, and other expertise costs a lot of money. And then another thing they, they tend to look for is marketing. They want money so that not only do they have capacity to produce more of what it is that they produce, whatever line of business they're in, but they also want uh, more outreach. Um, and, and really, th those are the things that typically on, on top of the list, the shopping list. Of course, in many other instances, entrepreneurs look for ways in which they can turn their entrepreneurial dream into something that makes them more comfortable. So if a venture capitalist puts money in their business and they could maybe get themselves a nice company car, you know, th those are the some of the things that we, you know, we, we tend to see pretty often, yeah. Yeah. Get, over, get, get a new office, something along those lines, yeah. Oh, nice offices as well, yeah. So, I mean, you spoke about what the, the typical entrepreneur that approaches a venture capital firm looks for, but I want to just dig a little bit deeper. High growth entrepreneurs, are they picky when, when choosing an investor? You know, um, are they looking for a specific um, investor, or are they happy with whatever capital comes their way as long as they're able to procure the stuff you spoke about? So I'll give you two scenarios. One is, you know, if, if they are in a situation where they're desperately in need of money, they'll take it from anyone, unfortunately, even one that isn't a good fit, whether it be just a purely financial investor who just gives you money and hopes for return. Um, but the best investors are those who understand the sector. 
So if you are a Vista Ventures who's who's accustomed to investing in technology, or or you know Peter Thiel or one of these people who understand that ecosystem, he's done PayPal's, done this, that, done so many sort of tech related or you know sort of investments. Then there you're getting value not only from somebody who is likely to be a board member, but somebody who can help with strategy, someone who can help with markets. So you know the right type of entrepreneurs, I'll, I'll put it that way will be very selective in who they seek capital for, because it's not just about the money. And that's a very important thing that they must recognize, that it's, it's about what does that money bring? Is it smart money? Smart money will come into the business and know exactly where to sit on the balance sheet and know what assets to procure. And um, so and that's, that the latter is certainly what I prefer to see. But generally, you also have a situation, particularly in Africa, um, people don't care where the money comes from as long as there's somebody willing to write a check. That's, that's what tends to matter more. Mm, I like that. I like the concept of smart money. I really do. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about what we call the entrepreneurial orientation of these founders. In other words, how these founders are inclined to think from an entrepreneurship perspective. So this is actually one of my favorite topics. And my master's research report is exactly on this. So I love this. And we're just going to break it down into a couple of things. So it's Primarily how entrepreneurs think about innovation, how proactive they are, and how risk-taking they are, right? So if we think about just innovation, I think you mentioned it um, in the beginning, to say entrepreneurs are typically trying to innovate. So in a small business, innovation is often uncertain, uh, right? And in a large business, innovation is often very sluggish. How do you think these firms think differently when it comes to innovation? Because it's it's not a clear science. So how are entrepreneurs, exactly. how are these entrepreneurs thinking about innovation? So from a high growth entrepreneur perspective, innovation in some instances is the value proposition because they're providing innovative solutions for the market that is looking for something different, something differentiated from whatever it is that people are procuring. You know, like I'll give you an example. Some people are smokers and then some entrepreneurs create a vaping thing, right? This is like, it's the same thing, but it's a different innovation. So the, the product in itself can be the innovation, but in, in some instances, it's the methodology in which the value proposition of something that is common is created. It could be a bottle of water where some companies harvest maybe rainwater or some use get from a spring. So some it's to do with the process in which a regular product comes to market. So the way I look at uh, high growth entrepreneurs who leverage an innovation, I'll break it down in two ways. So I'll, I'll start with the first one that I mentioned. The innovative product is, it's a given. If it's embraced and it's properly differentiated, then it, it will attract a certain type of clientele and, and it like, is likely to scale. So that's, that's uh, you know, on one, yeah, one way to look at it. And then the other is if they've found a way to innovate the process in which they create value. So you could be an accounting firm, but instead of they, you know, having a, a physical team of accountants, you've digitized it. So where you've got remote cloud-based accounting where you, you're integrated with various companies and then they just, you know, it's completely, um, yeah, on, online. Then, then you've, you've essentially create, you're, you're providing a service that already exists, but in a differentiated way. So those are, those are two ways in which high growth um, companies utilize innovation to, to create value and, and to scale. I like those examples, um, and I just want to latch onto them. Should because these high growth entrepreneurs are 
you know, sophisticated, right? Either they've got um, sophisticated skill sets, experiences, they've traveled, they've seen something very different. Must their value propositions really be that complicated? Should they be all uh, thinking about the next search engine like Larry Page? Um, or it's more around just the process of thinking about it? Um, yeah. Very interesting. You know, it's the thing about innovation is that it's, it's always coming out of a completely, a pain. so, so, so I, I think of it this way. Um, Steve Jobs, you know, thought of things differently. You know, many, the classical entrepreneur will tell you is look for a gap in the market, look for what people are looking for. But his school of thought is no, I'm not going to make, I'm not going to fill a gap that you're looking for. I'm going to create demand. I'm not going to fill the gap of demand, you know? So let's say in some markets, you know, oh, there aren't enough tires. So let's create a tire factory or there aren't enough, there isn't water, you know? And so, you know, you, you sort of plug in a hole, but somebody says, well, people actually don't need to drink water. We can create a whole new innovation in which people, you know, get their hydration through steam or something just out of this world. And that really comes out of creativity and imagination. And, you know, those are things that are very difficult to put your finger on because it really comes out of the, the in incredible, intangible element of human in a, you know, ingenuity. Um, so I think that's, that's really how I'll answer that question is that it, it's very hard to put a finger on. And I can only say it with hindsight that, you know, who, who would have thought that we, we needed, let's say, you know, I mean, we were perfectly happy having music the way it was before, but then now the integration of music on the phone and camera and everything sort of creating a complete disruption um, because somebody thought it, it would be a cool thing to do. It wasn't a need, but it became a need because of how convenient it was and, and how the market was able to respond to it because of the convenience of it, having everything in one place. I mean, a phone has literally uh, become revolutionary. You can, you know, get your emails, work and everything. Everything we take for granted is now sitting in this one device. When, you know, a couple of decades ago, it was in multiple devices. You know, you get a separate camera, you get a separate computer, separate, you name it. Um, so really innovation is, is one of the hardest things to, to talk about the, the fundamental elements of what makes it work because of the fact that its drivers are completely imaginative, you know, so to speak. Yeah, I like that. I like the, you know, the admission that this is difficult stuff. You know, it's not like yeah. we, everybody yeah. has a formula to do this thing. Um, and pretty much it's what you said around connecting the dots backwards, which I think it's actually Steve Jobs who said that himself. Um, and so, for example, um, just back on our Google um, example with Larry Page and them, it was really suggested to them that this should be their research topic. And they're so grateful for that because only in hindsight do you realize that yeah, that was a really great uh, research topic, you know, so it's not, uh, it's really not a simple game. So I want us to, pro uh, to move Absolutely. on to, to proactiveness, which is, you know, really do people think about uh, being proactive as an, as an entrepreneurial behavior? But research show, um, has shown that it actually is uh, an entrepreneurial behavior and can really boost your outcomes a lot more. 
So how do you think uh, these entrepreneurs relate to their competition, for example? Do they lead their competitors? Do they introduce new products or features first? You know what? Being proactive is extremely important. There's, there's something else we say within the venture space that, you know, we want people who can execute. It's all about execution. And execution has a, a connection to, to being proactive. It's being conscious. It's being perspicacious. It's being aware, being very having a level of conscientiousness where you're in, in a given community and you're alert to some of the issues. And not only are you doing, perhaps doing what others are doing, but doing it better, but creating new solutions to, to maybe what others are doing that, that are alternative. And this is, you know, and this is a, a question that reminds me of what does five force, you know, but I'll, I'll emphasize on two key forces, which are competitive forces that from a strategic perspective, you have to be ready to be positioned to overcome if you're either an entity where new entrants are coming in or you are the new entrant being a threat to others. So whether it be creating a substitute product, it could be something completely different that knocks out the another product. So I'll give you one example. That's my personal fear because Zambia is a copper dependent country. You know, a lot of our exchange earnings, our economy runs on, on copper, right? Which is a, a, a metal, which is, is a highly conductive metal. Now, if some kid somewhere in China, in South Africa or somewhere um, comes up with an alloy or something that turns two very simple components or creates some sort of a, an innovation that replaces copper, then copper is, is gone. Because if, you know, if uh, you know, these connectors or whatever goes into computers that, that you know, is essentially uh, where copper is utilized is substituted for something cheaper, then of course you kill an entire industry. And, and the market would shift on the basis of that, uh, you know, on, you know on, on that new innovation. So that's one example of, of a threat of a substitute product. There's also a threat of a, a more powerful company uh, that essentially can pivot to what you're doing. So I'll give you an example of mobile money transfer. And this actually happened in Zambia, where a, in, a company uh, came up, it was extremely exciting. It created this mobile money uh, wallet, uh, something alternative to to uh, money transfer by bank or other formal structures like uh, MoneyGram and Western Union, you could do you could transfer money with a mobile wallet. And then what the mobile telecom operators realize is that one, they're big, they've got already customers on their mobile phones. So all they can do is replicate that model. And because they have bigger budgets, they do it more effectively, utilizing the systems that they already have in place and upsell um, all their GSM, uh, how do I say, customers into the mobile money space and it killed the new little innovative business so consciousness of competition is very important and being being able to react quickly to to trends within the market and this is why i always talk about being perspicacious you know it's not enough to just have knowledge or to have education or or know-how it's very important for you to understand the ecosystem in which you are you're operating who are your competitors what are they thinking what and anticipating that some businesses have a life cycle that would naturally come to an end. Uh, there's certain things by virtue of, you know, the evolution of, of technology. The, the, some entities literally become irre irrelevant uh, by virtue of that. Um, even, even though some entities have tried to, to change and, and basically become like the new age entity. So I'll give you a perfect example is mobile phones. You know, Nokia was a market leader. Motorola was a market leader. Um, but they, they were unable to keep up with the way mobile phones, you know, sort of went into various iterations or 
various uh, incarnations, um, which is now today sort of sitting as uh, a market that's dominated by the likes of uh, Samsung and Apple and, and a few others. But, but the ones that led the way in the beginning just did, couldn't cut it. It could be because of the, the culture in which they were created, they were dominant at one point, but there is a life cycle to some of, to, to, to what could have been deemed as an as a initial innovation. The same way it is very possible that the likes of Google could also reach the end of their life cycle of relevance, but they're being very clever. They're leveraging on their enormous capacity to buy out new innovations. This is why they make a decision you know, to buy YouTube, buy Fitbit, buy, you know, just to, to maintain relevance because they've got the capacity and, and you know, the bandwidth to, to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. I actually also, something about what you said made me think about Kodak as well. You know, they were, oh, they were a leader um, at the time in the digital photos printing space. And in fact, one of the employees was like, okay, here's an idea, digital camera. And they said, great idea, but we end printing, thanks, goodbye. Um, and so absolutely, it's about that consciousness, proactiveness is about consciousness um, of where yeah. you are. And you're absolutely spot on about Google having, I mean, they've got, I think, multiple venture funds just buying out new innovations. So spot on. Yeah. So how then do entrepreneurs manage risk, by the way? Um, they're taking new, these, these, or rather these high growth entrepreneurs, how do they manage risk? They're taking new bets. Most people are not yeah. thinking about these new bits. Um, so how are they managing risk? So risk, obviously, you know, usually from a financial perspective, my idea of risk is where's the money going to be lost? You know, if you venture into this line of business, then you're going to, you know, lose a whole bunch of uh, investor capital. But the reality is it's also important to test, to gauge, to study, to analyze the market and, and, and really take a shot and, in many instances, it's, it, I would say it's a risk, especially in the high growth space, is a sink or swim type of situation. You know, the risks that won't materialize are essentially going to fail. And people just have to come to terms with that reality, that not everything is, is going to be a success. So the way they should treat risk is with a completely open mind, utilizing assets and resources that they can manage and they could measure to what extent would this be a loss? If you're Elon Musk and you bet your entire net worth on a crazy idea that you know, there's a global market for fossil fuel-driven vehicles, that you're going to create battery-driven vehicles, and you're up against giants, GM, you know, all these entities around the world who, who have existed primarily on, on fossil fuels, and then you decide that, well, I'll disrupt it, create battery-powered vehicles, and, and it'll make it happen. That was a single swim for him. And had that failed, then, you know, the reality is he'd, he'd be history. But of course, the flip side of that happened. You know, the company's way more valuable than many other automotive uh, entities. And it's an incredible success story. So my, I think really to conclude, uh, you know, the answer to the question of how should entrepreneurs treat risk is to embrace it and gauge how much are you willing to lose? Are you willing to bet everything and lose it all and be okay with that? Or of course, um, with the might, with a very small probability that this is going to be an incredible success. It's really about one's own appetite to to lose uh, that which they're willing to invest or risk. I like that one's own appetite. Um, mm -hmm. Decide for yourself what you're going to lose. Uh, essentially, exactly. yeah, yeah, I love that. 
All right, so let's talk about how others see and identify founders or entrepreneurs that start businesses with high growth potential. So this comes back to my question now, which is the flip side of, as a private equity investor in patient um, equity capital, these enterprises are definitely attractive to you. You're constantly looking out for these, for these type of enterprises. What are you looking for? What we certainly look for, the first thing is the, the person. When we talk about, we spoke about Google, but we started by mentioning Larry Page and Sergey Brin because it was created by those individuals. So investors think about the individual first. What is their capacity? What is their ethos? Where is their heart in creating this? Because at the end of the day, a high growth entity depends largely on the vision, the capacity, the competence, the resilience, and the innovation of the entrepreneur. So you want to have a sense of their character. The other element is issues relating to integrity. You want to know that, can I trust these, you know, these people? You have to, of course, there's a bit of a due diligence in their background, um, you know, their reputation and the like, because in matters of money, integrity is a very important element. And obviously committing to a vision, working together to, to scale that vision that they have in place. And then thirdly is, is competence. You need to know that this, this person is knowledgeable in what they're doing. You know, if, if you're sitting across the table from, I'm sure you know, we mentioned his name already, but Elon Musk, then he knows inside out what Tesla is all about. If you're talking to Mark Zuckerberg, he knows inside out. He's obsessed with the idea of connecting people. And, and that's, that's a, actually a perfect segue. You know, when a person has a vision, there's clarity. Clarity is very important. So it's, when you mix competence and clarity, you create something that is quite remarkable. In, you know, in his mind, Facebook is a very simple concept, but behind the scenes, there's algorithms, there's systems, there's processes, but with it, you know, his whole ethos was, I just wanted to connect people. And I love that answer, but, the, you know, but it's become what it is today, the behemoth that, is, it, it, that it is, um, you know, with the, its you know, billions of, of users. So those are the type of elements we look for. And then of course, to me, I put it at the end, you know, of course the value proposition and, and all that is, is connected. The financial viability comes later. Same thing with Facebook, by the way. Facebook was listed before it ever turned a profit, before it even could be monetized. It turned a profit, but because people believed in it so much because of its network. They knew that you could probably monetize a social network because of the fact that there's multiple people, so therefore you can embed other services and advertising and the like into that. The same way WhatsApp is yet to be monetized, but it was bought for $19 billion by Facebook, of course. So if money is the only thing that will make the difference in them being able to have the assets to essentially scale, then you know you're investing the right business. Because there are a lot of businesses out there who they throw money at it, it's, it won't change anything because there's a problem in competence, there's a problem in integrity, there's a problem in capacity and, and all those other elements. So those, so those are things we look out for, for sure. A high growth business, the fundamental element of high growth business is the fact that if the only thing that it needs or the only thing that is missing is resources, financial resources, then you know it's probably the right business to invest in. Because if all the other fundamental elements are there, the idea, the entrepreneur, maybe a bit of traction, um, the, the capacity, the passion, integrity, and all those sort of factors and the ability to create, put this sort of proposition together if it's all there it's clear there's not only you know great deal of a combination of what i touched on with regards to someone like you know elon musk where there's clarity or you know i i, you know, I think no, i was talking about zuckerberg sorry um where there's enormous clarity they've, they've managed to 
distill complexity into simplicity. And all they need is the financial resources to get that asset that allows th this value proposition to essentially be um, made available to, to, to clients who would essentially be in a position to, to buy it. So because finance wants to, to, to be parked in a company where the only thing that is needed is, is assets. So that, that converts um, what the company is creating in terms of value into cash. So that's, that's really fundamentally the only thing because what tends to happen just on the flip side is um, some companies, because of uh, some, you know, Silicon Valley is a wash with capital. And this is why you hear a lot of stories of you know, companies being overvalued, you know, these so-called unicorns. You have a multi-billion dollar company, but it's, not, it's, it's got fundamental problems. I, I'll take one example. Uber is a great idea. It's a great business. It's scaled, but it, they can't get the model right. It had some fundamental issues with regards to the founder. You know, there were integrity issues. You know, I touched on the corporate culture. Things just weren't put together the right way in order to get that business to, to function the right way, to scale the right way. Um, and money wasn't the issue because, you know, SoftBank and all these other companies put in billions of dollars but still couldn't fix it. So it's, it's about being in a situation where you don't want to throw money at a, at a problem that money can't fix. Money should be fundamentally the only thing that's missing. And that's those are the type of entities we look for. I love that. So as an accountant, I'm teaching my entrepreneurs to get their financial model right. And you're saying, no, 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 hold on. You should be saying to entrepreneurs, get your integrity right. Get your passion yes. right. Have that clarity with competence, right? Which I really like um, the point you mentioned around that. So very valuable, very valuable stuff. So how do you assess all of these characteristics at a glance? I mean, you're meeting an entrepreneur. They come into your office. You have coffee with them. And you're supposed to assess all of these complex things all at once, all in a glance. How do you do it? Fortunately, you know, in the world of venture capital, nothing's ever done at a glance. Yes, the only thing that's done at a glance is, is the first impression, which could make or break whether or not we have that second meeting. But this is probably the most frustrating things for entrepreneurs because from the first time you meet, the decision's not made. It's not made even on the 10th time. Because you're going through a process, you're doing due diligence, not just commercial, you're doing legal, you're doing market validation, you're doing, you're engaging with your investment committee to evaluate, are you making the right decision? So it's not just yourselves as venture capital fund managers evaluating companies, you're, you're working with your governance structures. So sometimes it could take up to six months, maybe a year of evaluation, constant evaluation. And that's where you really, it's, I, I like to compare, my favorite analogy in private equity investing is like dating. Yes. Love, and, love at first sight probably exists, but that's based primarily on optics, right? It's on superficial elements. There are character traits that you may not know until you spend time with them over dinner, you, and you're exposed to that person in multiple scenarios. Same thing in, in private equity investing. You want to be able to get to know the, the individual from various elements, understand what motivates them, what drives them. That can never happen on a, on a glance. The only thing that can happen on the glance is, is gauge, okay, this is the sector that we're attracted to. Fine, you're in financial services, or it's a fintech, or it's energy solution. That's fantastic. Yes, where there's confidence is key. The only things you see at a glance are confidence. You can see competence. Uh, you can see clarity. You can see those elements, but it's very hard to see the integrity piece and the validation on the market and, their co and, and maybe their competence 
in display and the competence in display is really from traction and that's really, uh, where you you know you see it down the line so we're very patient and there's a reason we call it patient capital not only do we sit <laughs> in those companies for a very long time but we're patient in our approach to getting to know that entrepreneur before we close the deal Awesome. Awesome. I love this talk. I, lo- I really, really enjoy it. So are you often right or, or wrong? I mean, you take so much time getting to know the entrepreneur. So are, how, how right are you uh, most of the time? You know, in private equity, there's a, there's a metric, um, there's a ratio that you're allowed to be wrong 20% of the time. And it's okay because you, make, you invest in companies that were just, you just didn't pick it up. And that, that's been a case in our case, you know, in our sort of uh, portfolio. We've invested in a bunch of winners, a couple winners, great businesses. Some have been, I wouldn't call mediocre, but have been okay. They've not lost money. They've not made a huge amount of money, but they've created some value and it's fine. And then you've got, you know, entities that were just a complete disaster for whatever reason. So to answer the question is, it's yes and no. Um, over time, you get better at picking companies. And you get better because one, you're confident, you're, you're, you're competent. So the same things you're looking for in companies, that's what you become. You become knowledgeable, you, you're, you're now more capable to analyze and, you know, and sort of gauge um, just purely based on experience. And then of course, your, your brand, your, your, the quality of your offering as an investor improves. Just having a good sense for, for the, you know, getting a good rapport. And that's another, in fact, one last point I want to make with regards to selection of companies and, and having a good feeling. Sometimes it's, there's, the, there's what they call intuition. It's something that's in your gut. Um, and it's something that cannot be articulated by a financial statement or value proposition or whatever the case or business model. But you just feel that this entrepreneur has the right energy. And um, you know, when I look at certain people, I, I watch YouTube, I, I follow interviews on Bloomberg. And when I see people like uh, the passion that Jeff Bezos has, the, or even people like um, Oprah Winfrey, or any one of these sort of incredible individuals. Um, who's, who's that uh, from Spanx? I forgot her name. Sarah Blakely. You know, there's some people who, the vibe they give off, I'm thinking, you know what? If I was the investor in that room and this person came to pitch, the butterflies would be there. Maybe it's because I'm already biased by my knowledge of their success. But the energy is just, you feel it. And, um, and that, I would say that's, that's the X factor that we've picked up in feeling that energy and getting that rapport. Nice. I, wanted, I want us to do an episode on intuition in entrepreneurship sure. and investment because that's a really, really um, interesting topic because we talk about all the other fundamentals, but we don't really spend a lot of time understanding our intuition, which comes into play mm. quite often, you know, um, so great. Um, so you, you're 20% wrong and 80% right. That's what I heard from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say, I'll put it this way, 20% wrong, complete failure. I'd say about 50% semi-mediocre, maybe 60. Then, then the, yeah, then the rest is, is pretty good decisions. It's pretty good decisions. Okay. Awesome. So entrepreneurs accessing um, private equity funding, what can they do to improve their chances of landing it? You know, um, whether it is at that first glance and, you know, you're trying to figure out, do I give them a second meeting or not? Um, Or it's actually even really uh, in a mature process and you're about to sign the check. 
Hmm. So I'll start really in basic terms. They need to get, you know, from, they need to get some traction first. You know, nobody wants to invest in an idea anymore. It's too risky. You know, this thing of you're giving somebody money who's got no skin in the game, no traction. They've not shown that even with little resources, they can get some sort of a, a prototype together. So that, that's the first thing is that get something done, no matter to the best of one's ability. I think that, that's one. And, and illustrate it. And, you know, be passionate. You know, that's the other thing about entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is hard. It's very difficult. And you can see passion by the way a person conducts themselves, the way how confident they are. It's like talking about your baby. Right? I don't think there's any love in this world that exists that's stronger than the love of, uh, you know, of a child, right? of a parent and their child. So if you're talking about a new business that you've started and you get, you know, and you've got a vision for its growth, that's the type of energy that you want to see. Because once that's, once we get past that, and I think that's really where the X factor comes in, everything else we know is manageable, you know, because we know that, you know, people are often, the vast majority of businesses fail, the vast majority of entrepreneurs quit, usually for all sorts of reasons. But the, the, the devotion, the desire, the passion is that the element is what we know that, okay, you know what, when things get rough, this person will stick it out. You know, I think those minor things. And of course, having a clear value proposition, clarity is extremely important. You know, if you can articulate your business model in 30 seconds, you've probably got a winner. You know, again, it's about distilling complexity and producing clarity and simplicity. Because um, ultimately, that's what people at, the, at the, the end user is going to be paying for because there's always an end user, whether you're producing a service or producing a product. And that's what we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of your value creation. So I think when you're clear on that, and of course, you know, the other fundamental elements around how you bring it to market, you know, what are the mechanisms, what are the activities, what is your competence to bring it to market and basically illustrating what will that money do? What will our money do for you? And, you know, and, and nothing else. Of course, yes, it's, it's okay to seek smart money and seek to have uh, somebody come into your business who's competent in adding value to your value proposition. But if, but the, the number one thing an investor wants, because by the way, just the last point, an admission, investors are a little bit lazy. Investors want to be passive. They want to sign you a check and say, good luck, call me when you, 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 know, you scale to this level. Of course, we attend board meetings. Of course, we are close to business, but we don't want to be part of the management, part of the handholding. It takes a lot of work. Um, we will oversee the entity from a portfolio management perspective. But you want to be able to illustrate that that's not the type of headache that you're going to bring. You know? So those are the type of things that we, <laughs> that we look for. And of course, ultimately, you will deliver a result um, and you can execute. Yeah, what I took away from what you actually have said the whole time is the emphasis mm. on passion and demonstrate mm. your passion. Um, mm. You know, like when that four-year-old lights up and she's talking about whatever else, um, that the experience mm. that they love or their favorite toy, that's how passionate um, you must be as an entrepreneur. And unfortunately, you can't fake that type of passion as well. Um, no, you can't. I suppose those are at, the, uh, at, a, glance, at a glance type of um, assessments as well. So my last question to you is um, really about the African continent. Um, look, there are a lot of brilliant entrepreneurs here who are high growth um, enterprises or, or who have the potential to be high growth enterprises. 
Um, and like you said, then the money is the only thing that's missing and that capital could come from, you know, outside, inside the continent and so forth. How does Africa improve its private equity um, ecosystem to enable more high growth enterprises? Hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that, that, that's the one. If I, if one person asked me, what were you put on this earth for? It's probably connected to what you just said is being an enabler for not only a cultural change, but a paradigm shift in private equity in Africa that allows for investment in, in SMEs, because that's what ultimately would change the, the fortunes of Africa, grow economies, alleviate poverty, and so on. So now, really to address the question, I'll start by saying governments need to take a much more, uh, I'd say, active role, and they can do it in, in a number of ways. One is turning uh, state pension funds or or most of the, particularly state pension funds, for example, that accumulate a lot of financial assets, uh, whether even the treasury itself and channel, because it's a, it's a resource, government is the biggest convener there is. Um, and of course they discharge duties of creating policy and the like. The other is on course, a lot of regional integration. Africa should not be looked at as, of course the world sees it as this monolith, but internally we're extremely different. I mean, the difference between Zambia and Ghana is like night and day. You know, it's the same, probably the same difference between Zambia and Italy. You know, there's, there's differences, but at the same time, we've got a shared history of having a colonial past, uh, of course, being people of African descent, having similar features. And, and of course, there's a whole narrative around how people of African descent or black people are treated globally. So there should be that unifying factor of that shared, those shared characteristics that should compel us to, in, to interact a lot more the way the European market interacts, the way the Asian market interacts, where there's trade across countries. And that should be perceived as a, as a market, one that allows for more fluidity of capital, of goods. We've seen that with the new Africa Free Trade uh, Agreement that's, that's somewhat being ratified, but not yet actionalized. Um, so, so, so those are the top two. And um, there being a more interconnection from a logistics perspective. If Transnet in South Africa, worked with the Zimbabwean Rail Authority, worked with the Mozambican and the Zambian and, the, and they're intertwined. So I could get from, you know, in, in a single route, maybe sometimes nonstop from Durban to Lusaka, nonstop, or maybe with a few stops in between because governments are, are speaking to each other and they've, they've somewhat decided that, okay, you know what, in order for us to, to be more interconnected, let's, let's get practical. Let's utilize our infrastructure, our capital, our ability to facilitate trade agreements and tariffs and lift tariffs and the like, maybe even have single African passports. I don't know, maybe you have to apply for it if you're an entrepreneur. So you, you don't have to go into any Afri other African country with a visa, you just land and you know, you're good to go um, to transact and the like. So I feel like more integration of systems, of logistics, of capital, of, um, you know, create more synergies because we've got different endowments on the continent. Um, South Africa is, is by far one of the, not only one of the biggest economies in Africa, certainly one of the most sophisticated where a lot of production happens. So it, it's definitely a good springboard to influence this sort of integration across the continent and create more sort of, and, and, and from a skills perspective, create uh, in collaboration, of course, with other governments, uh, satellite, how um, to say, manufacturing sort of areas. So for example, if South Africa is, is a market leader in the production of let's just say vehicles on the continent. Um, but of course, we know that because of logistics, because of supply chain, it may not be, you know, South Africa may not be able to access, let's say the Northern North African market, but because of know-how, 
is a collaboration with Ghanaian entrepreneurs to create a, a, a satellite uh, production facility that allows you know there to be not only shared shareholding and value uh, from a you know from a value creation standpoint, but you're you're essentially creating an, an outpost for, for market uh, accessibility. I mean, there's so many ideas one can come up with, but I would say fundamentally, those are the key things that, that I would promote um, you know, among Africans to transform the entrepreneurial and the investment and private equity ecosystem on the continent. Yeah, Gito, you know, they always talk about pearls of wisdom. You've just dropped bombs of wisdom. So, <laughs> so thank you so, you so much for that. I mean, it's just been uh, an episode filled with so much um, clarity, incredible clarity in terms of how high growth enterprises should be thinking and the type of things we should be doing as investors and as the African continent. So I just want to thank you so much for being generous with your time, your mind and all your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been incredible. And um, you know, I, I really, really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and have access to an incredible audience that you have. And, um, and I think this is part of the dream we're realizing, right? Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm here in Zambia, you're down in South Africa, right? And uh, being able to speak uh, from a Pan-African perspective to a wider global audience, the Pan-African audience, and share these insights. I'm sure there's somebody or among many who, are, who will be listening to this podcast, who will be inspired, who will want to activate their, their dreams and bring them into fruition. And who knows, uh, you know, there might be collaboration with the, either you and I on, on any of those businesses. Amazing. Amazing. I really want to thank you, Chito. Um, definitely. Thank you for listening to the Wellness for Entrepreneurs podcast, exactly a space for meaningful conversations with founders. Please click on the link below to subscribe and follow us on our social media channels. Goodbye.